0: the truth. Knowing the truth can set us free. But here's the reality. Maybe many of you have dealt with this. I know I sure have. Facing the lies we've come to believe can be terrifying. Sometimes we're so entangled in this web of our own deceptions, and the lies we believed, and we can even see maybe the truth, but it terrifies us. And we know, we know to get out of it isn't going to be without some scars. It's not easy to do but it's something we have to do. It's something we have to do in our fight against the devil. It's how we fight is to know the truth. Jesus was all of his calling his people, his disciples and also other followers to repent and to believe the good news we think of that as a confession of sin which really all of our sins are lived because of lies we've believed, distortions about reality, what we think will bring us happiness. That's what it comes down to. And sometimes we think of repentance as a rushing to the altar and falling on our hands and knees and sobbing uncontrollably. And there are times for that and those are things that are beautiful and absolutely that is valid. But oftentimes repentance doesn't have to look like that. What it looks like to repent and believe simply means to rethink your mental maps of what you think will lead you to a happy life. Trust in those of Jesus Himself. So, Bernard Heinrich is a modern day uh, Renaissance man. He is a professor of zoology at the University of Vermont. Uh, He's also the author of multiple books, uh, including a couple that I've read, uh, one that was fascinating. A Year in the Maine Woods. So if you know anything about Henry David Thoreau and his time at Walden, uh, this is a very uh, a book that's very similar in nature to that. He literally lived off the grid for a year in the woods of Maine. So, a very literal title. As a part of this, uh, I guess you'd call it experiment, he uh, raised and tried to domesticate ravens which uh, I didn't know much about, but apparently they're not easy to do, uh, to domesticate. He tells some hilarious stories about having them in his vehicle uh, while he's driving. Uh, He also is an accomplished ultra runner. Uh, He would regularly, during his time there, run 20 to 30 miles a day. At one point, he even held uh, the United States American record for the fastest 50K, so 31 and a half miles. During his time in the Maine woods, for the most part, living off the grid, he subsisted on uh, a few primary things. One, he baked his own bread, so homemade uh, bread with all the good stuff in there, baked potatoes uh, with, you know, basically just pretty much salt on them, and beer. And so he lived for almost a year primarily eating homemade bread, baked potatoes, drinking beer. Every once in a while, when he was in the woods, uh, every couple weeks or so, he would uh, go into town, and there was like a little mom-and-pop cafe, and he would get a whole bunch of bacon, uh, a whole bunch of eggs, that kind of stuff, just to, he just would crave it. Uh, And so... It's a really fascinating book, but again, like I said, he's also a very accomplished runner and specifically ultra runner, but being a scientist, he likes to do different sorts of experiments. And so while he was spending his year in the Maine woods and while he was running uh, these long runs out in the middle of the woods and subsisting on this bread and potatoes and beer diet, he hypothesized, he had a hypothesis and he thought to himself, okay, that." key to long distance running is you need to stay adequately hydrated, right? But you also need some sort of quick acting base level carbohydrate. If there any of you that ever run long races, you know that there's a distance at which you can just do water and you're fine. But then there are distances where you're going to need to mix it and some electrolytes, some sort of carbohydrate, even uh, in races that I've run longer races, they'll oftentimes at the aid stations have gummy bears and Skittles and a uh, flat Coca-Cola, something that provides a quick sugar boost. So his hypothesis was he thought that he could probably run a marathon uh, hydrating only with beer. So the idea was that beer is a lot of it's water, but it's also got barley and it's got natural carbohydrates. And if you know anything about the way that beers, is, there's also, as some of you are probably aware, a lot of sugar, right? A lot of quick acting sugar in it. And so he thought, I probably could run a marathon just drinking beer. Because he felt like spending this time in the Maine woods, he'd done really well with potatoes and bread and beer. And so he decided his plan, being a professor and a scientist and a free thinker in a lot of ways, um, again, Renaissance man, his strategy was, I'm going to drink one beer every mile. Like, that'll be the best way to go about this. And (laughs) you can see where this might be going. So the theory though was that okay look I'm going he's and he was fast so his theory is like I'm going to be going fast enough that when I basically shotgun this beer by the next mile I will have burned it off because I'm you know sweating and all this kind of stuff but I'll get from it enough water enough carbohydrates to sustain me. Let's just say at mile 10 it was a complete disaster. And he did not finish the race and there's a whole bunch more that I won't go into today uh, about what happened. So, we are in week two of uh, the three enemies of the soul. And as Pastor Jordan mentioned, we want you to listen to every sermon in this series. It's incredibly important, actually, that you do so. Uh, The three enemies of the soul, in case you're unaware, are the world, the flesh, and the one we're talking about right now, the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Last week, we introduced the series, and I spent some time talking about the devil, and we're going to do the same thing today, and actually, the two weeks following, Jordan's going to take the baton and run with it. We decided, actually, to add an extra week about the devil for a couple of reasons. One it was the response we got from so many of you, saying this was a lot of revelatory information, stuff you'd never heard. And then, because of the way we structured the series, there are some really deep, profound concepts that we didn't want to shortcut. We didn't want to have to be like, well, what do we have to chop or skip, because we felt like there was... All of it was really uh, incredibly important. So, four weeks we're going to be talking about the devil. And similar to last week, my plan for today is we're just going to go, okay? We're just going to go. And we're going to see how far we get, and then I'm going to stop. And that's where we're going to pick up effectively next week. So, last week I had uh, 42 slides. this week, if you, that's a lot, by the way. This week, I joked with Kate, who puts in the slides for us so kindly. I've got, I've got less slides this week. It was 41. So that's really good. Some of those were left over from last Sunday that I didn't get to. But if you're a note taker, if you are somebody that really wants to focus, take pictures, we're going to be flying through these, make them, you know, jot in your journal or whatever. But also, as I said last week, you can email me, and I'd be happy, and many of you did, uh, to send you all of my notes. So... Last week we talked about the devil. Let's get a few things established that we talked about last week as reminders. and I'm not going to spend much time on this because I really want to get in, but there are a few things. First, we established this kind of thesis, this really uh, you know foundational thing for the rest of this series. and it's this: our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth, that our fight with the devil is first and foremost. Now, there are other aspects to it. We're going to talk about that some today. But first and foremost, it's a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. You remember we really based a lot of last Sunday off of this scripture in the Gospel of John. It's an encounter Jesus has with the Pharisees, where they're antagonistic towards him. And he doesn't let it go. He responds very strongly uh, to some of the issues that they were causing, the trouble that they were stirring up. And he says this in John eight forty four. He says to them, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. And then he explains what they are. He was a murderer, From the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth, no truth in him. When he lies, it's such a great line. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So we use this scripture as really our launching point for understanding a lot of things about the devil. And just from this singular verse, we can extract so many things. And we got to two of those last week. We're gonna hit the third today and then transition. So the one thing we established last week out of this text and also the meta-narrative of scripture is this. For Jesus, there is a devil, right? For Jesus, there is a devil. You belong to your father, the devil, and then he describes him, right? This isn't some like spiritual abstraction, some sort of cosmic superstition-type force, right? This some sort of random, like, thing that causes trouble. No, it's a real, tangible, immaterial, but present reality, and that is the devil. For Jesus, there is a real devil. Next, we learn this. The devil's end goal is to spread death. The devil's end goal is to spread death. John 10.10, a scripture we quote a lot of the time around here. The thief, and he's referring to the devil. It's another name that he's given. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. And then Jesus says, but I've come that you might have life and life to the fullest. So he's contrasting their missions. But he makes it clear there's no truth in him. He is a murderer, a murderer from the beginning, a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. What he wants to do, make no bones about it. Don't get it twisted. The devil's end goal is to spread death. For Jesus, the devil is the archetype of a villain who is hell-bent on destruction. He just wants to watch the world burn, Right. And we then established this very strong and important thing at the end of my message last week. And this is a key thing for this whole series and how you view it. If you don't get this, it, it, something's gotten missed. And so it's, it's a key. And it's a fact. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you desire to become like Jesus, to follow Jesus's ways, to apprentice under Jesus is to become a soldier in a war. If you are following Jesus, whether you realize it or not, and most of us are somewhere on that scale, even on a day-to-day basis, individually we can slide on that scale. Some days we're hyper-aware of it, some days it doesn't even cross our mind. But the reality is to apprentice under Jesus is to become a soldier in a war. C.S. Lewis said this to sort of paraphrase this idea: there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second, is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. We are soldiers in a war, right? So we understood that the devil is real. That's point one. Number two, the devil has come to wreak havoc, to steal, kill, and destroy, to bring death, to bring murder. Those are the first two things. Now, here we go to transition. Number three. Number three is this. Our last observation from John 8 is that the devil's means, his weapon of choice, if you will, is lies. His go-to move, right? His M.O., right, is lies. Jesus called the devil the father of lies. What does that mean conceptually when we say the father of something, right? The originator right? The one who's given birth to, in some way, shape, or form, the founder. So the devil is the origin point of deception. If You trace any lie that's ever been spoken throughout the history, right, of the universe, the history of humanity, any lie that's ever been spoken, any lie that's ever been believed, any lie that's ever been lived out, you can trace them back to one singular origin point, It's the devil. It's kind of a big deal. The truth, though, if you start to think about this, is not, well, I'd say most of us don't think about our fight with the devil this way. And most of what you hear talked about, and maybe you never hear this talked about, Pastor Jordan and I come from backgrounds where we hear this talked about a lot, but most of what you hear talked about when it comes to spiritual warfare, and maybe you've heard that term before, right, it's not about lies, it's not based on lies that are being spoken and lies that are being believed and lies that are being lived. It's something, it's something else. Much of what passes as spiritual warfare or what's named as spiritual warfare oftentimes is simply conjecture, right? And it can devolve really quickly uh, into paranoia or superstition. Maybe an example is like I've heard so many times over the years in different circles, people say things like um, they're blaming the devil for something that was probably just like bad luck or coincidence, or frequently their own like weaknesses. I got an, I got in a fight with my wife on the way to church today. It the devil, it, the devil was just there. Like and I'm like, okay, the devil was present in your minivan. Like the ruler of this world came to your minivan this morning for the sole purpose of disrupting. Your morning with your wife. Is it possible that maybe you stayed up too late last night, right? Is it possible that you didn't get up on time and that you had this and that and the other, and maybe you're just being a selfish jerk? <laughs> is that possible? Like, is that of the devil? Maybe, but it's not like he was present. That wasn't spiritual warfare in the most overt sense of it, right? It's usually not how it works. But what happens is when people start doing that kind of thing, when they talk about spiritual warfare and they start blaming the devil for things that are just bad luck, coincidence, their own faults and failures, people end up doing the proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? It sort of stigmatizes that idea in certain ways that people don't have nothing to do with it because they think everybody that talks about it or thinks about it is just a bit crazy and a bit off, I was like, well, I'm going to write the whole thing off because that's easier to do, and that's what we do as humans, right? C.S. Lewis, again, I'm going to quote him some today and I'm going to quote Dallas Willard a lot as we go forward, but C.S. Lewis in The Screwtape Tape Letters, a book I've recommended to many of you over the years. Profound and profoundly disturbing book in the best way. Uh, He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. He's talking about demons and the devil as a whole. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, speaking about the demons and the devil, are equally pleased by both errors. And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Right? As fun as it is for us to poke fun at somebody who says that the devil caused them to get into an argument with their wife on the way to church... Right? The danger for most of us is not that we're the first category. The danger for most of us is not that we feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in the devil. The danger for us is that we ignore him entirely and just go about our day completely oblivious to the assault that he is launching on our souls and to the ways in which he is functioning in this world to steal, kill, and destroy, not on just a macro level, although that's entirely true, But that he does want to steal, kill, and destroy when it comes to your family, your faith, and all kinds of other things. But let's say we do take the idea of the devil seriously. Let's say, well, I don't discount him. I don't think that that's something that's just superstition or from an era, you know, gone by. I believe in the devil and I believe in the devil's influence and I understand he's come to steal, kill and destroy. But oftentimes what we think of, again, even if we have decent categories for it, we'll think of it and we'll think of spiritual warfare as a scene out of The Exorcist, right? It's like some girl with her head spinning around, projectile vomiting everywhere, right? And speaking in a voice as deep as Barry White, right? It's like some kind of bizarre sort of, you know, um, caricature of it. It's like the most extreme example possible is what instantly comes to mind, and a lot of that's because of media and the way that it's portrayed, those kinds of things. Now, do those things happen? Is that stuff borderline, like, real? I don't know about the actual exorcist itself, but does that stuff really happen? Absolutely does. It absolutely does. right. The devil influences things like that. He, there are people that are under his influence in ways that are beyond what even we would consider normal. People that are demonized, people that manifest demonically. But then there's other things, like people get horrific diseases, and we might see that the devil's hand is in that too, or something similar. Again, these examples have legitimacy, but here's an interesting thing. An interesting thing when it comes to all that stuff, the demon possession, the demonization— Right, horrific diseases, which we see Jesus name as an affliction of the devil and then drive out repeatedly through the Gospels. But what's so interesting is that in Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, in all of the scriptures, in all of the Gospels, when Jesus talks the most and goes the deepest about the devil, he mentions nothing about any of that. Nothing. He doesn't talk about those things even one bit. No mention, right, of demons, no mentions of illness, no mentions of tragedy. Instead, what he talks about, and I'm sure you can guess it by now, is lies. Talks about lies. Let's reread Jesus' teaching one more time and play, pay close attention, and I have added a little bit into the end. And maybe I actually may have forgotten this one, but just listen. It says this, You belong to your father—oh, there it is. You belong to your father, the devil— And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. It's a war. What's the war between In this passage, it's not a war between somebody with head spinning around, projectile vomiting. It's not a war between somebody who's bent over at the waist for over a decade, which is something that happened in the Gospels. It's not a war about a storm that came up that Jesus had to rebuke and all that stuff. That's legitimate. It's valid. It's of the devil. There's no doubt about that. But the primary thing he's concerned about here when he's talking about the foremost religious teachers, the foremost intellectuals of his day, the primary thing he's concerned about is the battle between truth and deception. He's, not, he's saying, you don't believe me because I speak truth. I'm a truth teller. And you're captive to deception, to lies. That's kind of a big deal. Okay, so before we shift pretty hard, let's recap these three things that we've learned. For Jesus, there's an invisible, but real intelligence at war with God and all this good, beautiful, and true. It's real. The devil's end goal is to drive our souls and society into ruin. He wants to decimate love, real love, and that's part of what he's doing in our culture right now: is trying to redefine what love is and destroy real love with a complete right fabrication, a complete counterfeit. That's his end goal. Last, his method is lies. His primary stratagem, if you know what a stratagem is, right, it's beyond even a strategy. It's deeper than that. It has sort of a nefarious, like, intent at times to it. His go-to, his signature move, right, is deception, is deception. All the other stuff, demonization, illness wreaking havoc in the natural order, scaring little kids with bad dreams, it's all biblical, and we need to take it seriously. It's all real. If you and I, if Pastor Jordan and I came up here, we could spend four or five or more Sundays just between the two of us just telling stories about where we've seen the devil move in these kinds of ways. But Jesus is saying it's actually secondary. Jesus sees our primary war against the devil as a fight to believe lies over truth, which leads to an inevitable excuse me, follow-up question that was famously asked by Pontius Pilate. When he encountered Jesus, what is truth? We're supposed to believe truth over and against lies. Well, wouldn't it be helpful to know what truth is? Wouldn't it be helpful to be able to separate the two? So, anybody uh, up for a little philosophy? Anybody take at least philosophy 101? Anybody? At At least a 101 basic stuff in college. I like philosophy. I'm not... Uh, an expert, by any means, but I love I love discussing it. so let's talk philosophy and let's take some time, the rest of our time this morning, to explain the difference, the nature of truth and lies. Again, what is truth? What is truth? It's an age old question. We're going to start flying through some slides so get your whatever's ready. okay? The best definition I know of truth is this: it's reality or that which corresponds to reality. Okay? It's easy to get lost in some metaphysical, you know, abstraction, but for our purposes, let's just say that truth is what we can rely on as real. Right? The chairs that you're sitting on, okay? Those are real. Okay? Those are real. Contrary to some sort of crazy conspiracy theorists, right? Or those of you who've watched the Matrix way too many times, like, your chair is real. If you ate a steak last night, it was real. You're not plugged in to some kind of weird system inside this egg being fed intravenously, right? Okay, you're really here. You're really sitting on this chair, okay? I'm really wearing a flannel of Hawkeye colors after that embarrassing thing last night. Yes, that's real. I don't, didn't think about it until I got here, okay? That's real. So then, truth is reality, Or that which corresponds to reality then you have to ask another question well what's reality okay this philosophy what's reality another great working definition of reality is what you run into when you're wrong what you run into when you're wrong here we go okay bernard heinrich had something he believed maybe was true that you could hydrate just off a beer for a marathon Reality is what he ran into, quite literally, okay, when he was wrong. We have things we believe that are true, but then sometimes you bump into reality. Lie, or I'm sorry, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. If you've ever had this happen to you, which I hope you have, because otherwise something's very wrong with your life, if you've never believed something and found out only that, you know, later that it wasn't right, sometimes this can be painful, It can be embarrassing, but it's also necessary, right? If you say, right, for example, what you run into when you're wrong. Another example, if you say, I believe I can fly, right? Sorry to quote R. Kelly. That's a terrible decision, but just in my head. And you you walk off the top of a 10-story building, reality is what you hit a few seconds later, right? And that's actually where the cliche, a dose of reality, comes from. A dose of reality. You're getting dosed with it. It's, it's hitting you, right? It's changing something in you. When we call something a lie, when we say that's a lie, that's an untruth, what we're saying is that whatever that action or, you know, phrase or story or whatever it was, that theory we're saying, that doesn't correspond to reality, So a lie is something that doesn't correspond to reality. So again, sum it up. Truth is reality. Truth is reality. And the lies are unreality. Truth is reality. And lies are unreality. Pretty straightforward, but let's go a layer deeper. Okay, we're just going. We're just going to go today. See how far we get. So hopefully you're still, still with me. It's early. Early in the game. We all live by what psychologists call mental maps of reality. Now, I'm not endorsing right, modern psychology, especially modern secular psychology, but there's actually, and I have found very uh, high value in this working theory of how our brains work, and even there's plenty of neuroscience that supports this idea. We all live by what psychologists call mental maps of reality. These are reference points in our minds by which we navigate the world. All right, mental maps of reality. These are things that we think that are comprised of reference points in our minds by which we navigate the world. Our mental maps, essentially, are made up of a collection of ideas. Our mental maps are made up of a collection of ideas, and ideas are, okay, we're getting into some deep philosophy, deep stuff here. Our ideas are fundamentally assumptions about reality, right? Your ideas that you have are assumptions you make about reality. They're kind of working theories, right? They're usually based on some kind of evidence or experience about how life actually works. Usually in America, our mental maps and our ideas, you know, our assumptions about reality are things that we think will make us happy. That is the American mind in a nutshell, most of what we think and how we map reality and how we want to do certain things is what will bring us the highest levels of comfort, the highest levels of security, the highest levels of happiness. So we map out reality, and, right, assumptions about reality based on, based on that. And then our ideas, all these different ideas that we have about all these different things, they kind of coalesce and come together to form this mental map by which we navigate reality okay are we tracking i know that's a lot makes sense all these ideas that you have about all kinds of things come together and that's how you live your life based out of those ideas assumptions about reality what will work what will not work all that kind of stuff and if our mental maps are true so if they're true meaning if our mental maps the way we for the most part think about most of life if they're true if they correspond to reality we will usually have healthy lives. On the whole, we're going to have tragedy that befalls us. We're going to have things that come up that we're not sure what to do with. We're going to have all this different stuff, but fundamentally at a very base level, if we have healthy mental maps, we're going to have healthy lives, right? Now, if our mental maps are not true, if they don't correspond to reality, we're going to end up a mess. And maybe again, you've bumped into that in your life. I know I have. I don't say that lightly or facetiously or like, I'm just trying to relate. To, I know I've bumped into some heavy, heavy, heavy stuff in my life where I had a mental map, assumptions I made about reality and how I functioned in the world that I hit hard, right, into, a, into this dose of reality. I got a hard, painful dose of reality, right? It's important stuff. Now, here's where things start to get interesting, maybe also more confusing, okay? The wonder of us as humans, God's creation, the wonder of the human person is our ability to hold in our minds ideas that correspond to reality and ideas that don't correspond to reality. So all of you, as you sit here today, this includes me, all of us as we sit here right now at this moment, probably a lot, the vast majority of your mental maps and the things you believe correspond to reality. If they didn't, you probably wouldn't be here. You probably wouldn't be able to function the way that you do, right? Even if you feel like you're not functioning particularly well at the moment, you're still here. You're still present. You got dressed. You combed your hair. You maybe brushed your teeth. I don't know, but like whatever. You did stuff, right? But as you sit here, I can tell you, and I don't mean this to, I don't know, I'm saying me too, okay? All of you are on some level, you have something going on that doesn't correspond to reality in your life right now. Somewhere, someplace, there's some sort of lie that you have believed and you're living into. Remember, the issue is not that we tell lies. It's more that we live them. And we have this capacity. And of course, the ideal is that we have, let's say, like a 95-5 split or even better, you know. But we all have this. We can hold this intention There's a negative side to unreality, obviously. It's our capacity to believe a lie or illusion and how that can really disrupt and really, at times, destroy parts of our lives. But there's also a positive side, and that's our capacity for imagination, right? This is what enables all human creativity. It's, right, what inventions spring from is somebody's ability in their mind to hold this unreality that they think about something that doesn't actually exist. It's not real at the moment. But somehow they can envision it, imagine it, and they can start to conceive of how it might become a reality. And that's a beautiful thing. That's where we, I mean, we've had anything you think of that's been an incredible invention of our society, right? It's because somebody was able in their minds to hold reality and unreality in a healthy way and turn that unreality into inventing something, creating something, right? Think about the great artists, right? of the world. Think about the great sculptors of the world, how they can see a block, right, of stone. It's just a block of stone, and that's what I would see. And they can see in there something that's not reality yet, but they can make it reality. And that's part of our nature, right, that we are Imago Dei in the image of God, and God is first and foremost a creator. And he's put that in us, right? He envisioned this world, and he saw it. It was unreality, but he was able to turn it and make it real, and so when we create, somebody once said that when we create, that's when we actually are the most God-like, when we're creating things, right? And you thought you were just like bacon muffins, you know, but you're creating something out of something else. It's kind of cool. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Our capacity to hold unreality in our minds is our genius, but it's also our Achilles heel, not only can we imagine unreality, but we can come to believe in it. We can put our faith in ideas that are untrue or worse, that are lies. Dallas Willard once said this, we truly live at the mercy of our ideas. We truly live at the mercy of our ideas. In the movie Swing Kids, if you've ever seen that or not, it's post-World War II, or it's actually during World War II in Germany, and the Nazis are picking up some steam, and there's a sort of rebellious movement of these kids that are swing dancing, and it's a long story, but one of the characters says, we live and die with our beliefs. We live and die with our beliefs. We truly live at the mercy of our ideas, because our ideas that we believe It's what gives shape and trajectory to our souls, right? It shapes the way that we live and who we become, because the way we live is who we become, and there's overlap there. When we believe truth, that is, ideas that correspond to reality, again, we flourish. We do well. But when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, literally, quite literally, all hell breaks loose. We live at odds with reality. And as a result, we struggle to thrive. So, let's talk about something Maybe a little sensitive this, these days. I don't know. But let's talk about human sexuality. Anybody heard anything about that in the news lately? Or is it just me? I want to say before I get into this that I don't, and you shouldn't expect people who don't believe in Jesus to live like Jesus followers. That doesn't make any sense. You can't hold somebody to a standard they don't subscribe to. That's not how that works, okay? They're not following Jesus you know, like, whatever, say la vie, you know, like, I mean, carpe diem, like, whatever. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. So I'm not trying to talk about that. Paul actually says, what business is it of mine to judge those those outside the church? He's like, but, and he says, but, it is my job to judge those inside the church. We don't like to talk about that second part all that much. I did tell someone that this week. I was giving him a hard time. I was like, Paul says it's my job to judge those inside the church. I'm just doing that. i just doing my job. But the move of the Holy Spirit, what we're trying to accomplish in this series, is it's not outward to critique. I'm not trying to create, and Jordan's not trying to create this sort of perpetual echo chamber. I'm not trying to, like, make you feel all good about these beliefs that you already hold about, the you know, decaying society and all these things and how bad all these people are. I have zero interest in that. None. If you take that away from this series, like, you missed the whole thing. You missed the whole thing. It's not about them out there. It's about you in your seat right now wondering, where am I living in unreality, right? Where have I given myself over? So something that's important to remember, we're not trying to critique the culture. I'm not trying to critique the culture. Most of the time when I critique something up here, it's usually The church, because that's the culture I'm a part of, right? I'm really not trying to control it. We're trying to flourish a counterculture. That's what our job is, okay? So, let's talk about human sexuality in the next three minutes. The sexual liberation, right, revolution of the 1960s is where this kind of started, it set in motion a cascade effect. All right, the reversal of the long standing moral consensus around promiscuity. So, it was the first time in American history where sex was separated from marriage. That worked in tandem, so, that was part one. That worked in tandem with the advent of birth control and the legalization of abortion which those two things separated sex from procreation. So we separated sex from marriage and sex from procreation, the two things that it had primarily been based on for, really, ever in our country. Then those things, not long after, because this is inevitable, moved on to the legalization of what's called, and we take this for granted nowadays, but it's the legalization of what's called the no-fault divorce. That turned a covenant then what was intended to be a covenant into a contract and it also separated sex from intimacy and fidelity you go all the way there to tinder right and to hookup culture which separated sex from romance and turned it into a way to quote unquote get your needs met from there it moved on to the lgbtq plus revolution which even further separated sex from the male-female binary, and now on to the current transgender wave, which is an attempt to separate gender from biological sex. And whether you know it or not, there was just an article about this, uh, I think it was a judge, not surprisingly, like in New York yesterday, they're talking about the legalization of polyamory, right, polygamy. The legalization of the idea that, you know, you could be married to all kinds of different people simultaneously. So that's an attempt to move past even two-person relationships. Guys, this all happened in the last 60 years. It's a lot, okay? And amid the revolution, all of this stuff that's gone on in a very relatively short time span, all of this, and it's going at warp speed, hyperdrive, right? Just three or four years ago, I don't remember anybody ever talking about the stuff we're talking about now constantly, right? Hyperdrive, right? Ludicrous speed, right? Right? All you Spaceballs fans out there. Sorry, that's one of those that definitely wasn't in my notes. Um, But the questions nobody seems to be asking is this, right? Is this making us better people? Is it making us more loving people or even happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our quote-unquote liberation? Nobody's really even asking these questions. In fact, if you ask these questions, you're liable to get kicked off of Twitter or censored or, or whatever, much less making a serious attempt to research the data. It's just assumed, of course, the liberation, why wouldn't we do it? You know, of course, it's going to make you happier or feel more free or better people or we're way more loving now, right? These, these are ideas, right? And what are ideas? They're assumptions about reality, but let's think about or talk about a few data points from the research that has been done. Happiness levels. There's a guy, professor in university, I think it's Penn State. Seligman's his last name. I don't have this in my notes, but he's done happiness research. Happiness research. Interesting field of studies. A psychologist. Happiness levels have been in decline in the U.S. since the 1960s. That's just a happy accident, though. Well, and, you know, correlation is not always causation. Philosophy, talk about that. But you have to admit that's at least an interesting coincidence. All right? In spite of the cultural narratives that tell us otherwise, divorce is an incredibly traumatic event for children of all ages. They measure, they can measure this stuff, by the way, the human brain with all the abilities we have now. And the number one most stressful thing, even for adults to go through to this day, despite all the free love and all that, is still divorce. Why is that? Well, it's a tearing apart of the flesh. God says when you join together, you become one. And there's something profound about that. When it's torn apart, it's not good, but it's an incredibly traumatic event for children of all ages. And the results that we've seen in the last 60 years are that people who grow up as children of divorce, and I'm not condemning anybody, I'm just telling you what the cultural narrative is. Saying it's totally fine, it's no big deal. Go ahead, do it, whatever. You know, I mean, even Tom and Giselle, you know, are on this this train now, right? Some of you don't, no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. But those children, increasingly as they grow up, have delayed, right, and prolonged adolescence. They develop, they struggle to develop intimate, healthy relationships in adulthood. They're afraid of it, right? There's so many more things I could talk about. You know, there's tons of documented evidence, little talked about, of course, data, uh, regarding the effects of abortion on women's physical and mental health. 25% now of all children born in the U.S. will spend at least a portion of their childhood without a father in the home, and that number is incredibly uh, larger in certain parts of the country and certain parts of the inner city. How about the fact that all the data, all the evidence, everything tells us that sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy for those who identify as transgender absolutely don't benefit them one bit, not one bit, which is the main rationale behind doing it, right? They're presented with this argument, would you rather have, you've probably heard this, would you rather have a live son or a dead daughter, You don't let them do this, they're going to kill themselves. Well, the problem is it doesn't bear out over a long enough timeline. It just goes on and on and on. All these things are left out of the discussion, if there even is a discussion. I say all that not because I'm angry. And if you're sitting there, you're fuming, and you're just so angry at all those people, pray right now that the Holy Spirit would change your heart, because it should break your heart should break your heart. There's a righteous anger for sure, for sure, but righteous anger usually starts with deep level compassion and brokenheartedness for the people who, upon which are the victims of this or the violence or the whatever is being perpetrated, right? Jesus turned over the tables in the temple, but why? Why did he do it? He did it because the poor were being exploited. It started with deep compassion, and sympathy and real pain, right? If you're just angry, you're missing the lion's share of it and don't justify it as righteous anger unless you have deep compassion for all those people out there who are believing lies. Because we don't battle flesh and blood. It's the principalities and the powers, right? If it's flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. So I just rattled off all that stuff, and it should make us sad. If we're angry, it should make us angry at our real enemy, that we're talking about right now. Mary Eberstadt wrote a book, crazy title, Adam and Eve After the Pill, right? She says this, contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women, and its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society even as as given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. Right, the liberation that we are supposedly engaged in is starting to look more and more like actual enslavement and captivity. Because the problem with the carpet bombing of thousands of years of human wisdom around sexual desire is just one small problem, right? The problem, we have the slide for that, the problem with the current carpet bombing Thousands of years of human wisdom around sexual desire reality. Reality. Mental maps by which we're living are off. The cold hard truth, right, is this that our mental maps, the collection of ideas by which we navigate life can be wrong, and at times horribly so. Okay. How many of you are hanging on still? A few more minutes. I've got to close this off with a little bit of. You're like, that this is really depressing. (laughs) Like, I wanted my like spiritual happy meal this morning. Like, I just drive by, you hand it, I feel good, I go home. This stinks. (laughs) Okay. Let's try to maybe get to something. I'll just leave the uplifting part to Jordan, okay? Set him up for that. He can come with all the love. Oh right Jesus calls the devil the father of lies which is uh, in John 8 but it's an allusion to Genesis 3 the story of Eve and the serpent right the father of lies he came at her right with what he came at her with an idea it was an idea more specifically a lie and the lie was you won't you won't die like you won't die if you eat that like you'll be you'll be fine like i mean yeah, God, did he really say that? Like, did he really? and you're like, oh, I don't did he? I don't know. Did he say that? Right? I think he did. No, no, no. And then he's like, well, what's his motivation for saying that? He doesn't really care for you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. M. Scott Peck, famous psych- psychiatrist in his groundbreaking book, People, the Lie called the devil, a spirit of unreality, a real spirit of unreality. It's a book, People of the Lie. I've read it quite a while ago. It's absolutely fascinating. If you don't know, M. Scott Peck was an atheist, secular humanist psychiatrist who came to Jesus in his late 40s, radical, and it completely upended everything that he'd done. And he was genius, genius level thinker. And so he he took that, kind of like the Apostle Paul, he took all that he'd been doing and he took his, you know, incredibly erudite mind and he started to apply it to thinking differently about things and doing different research. Specifically, he became fascinated and almost, I think, the Spirit led him to do in all this stuff with evil. The first conclusion he came up with, you'll kind of laugh at this, but hopefully I'll give some context to it. He came up with this first conclusion was that there are evil people in the world, There are evil people in the world. The average person hears this and thinks, well, yeah, of course, and the earth is round. Although some people don't think the earth is round these days. But most of us think, well, yeah, duh, right? Captain obvious. But to the scientific community at the time, that thinking was completely taboo, right? Because they're, again, secular humanists, all about science, nothing spiritual. So if it's nothing spiritual, if it's just purely secular, if it's purely just a nihilistic sort of way of living, then there's no such thing as good and evil, right? Because that would... Say that there's some kind of absolute truth, and we can't say that it's really just the spectrum. He was breaking this massive taboo. To so claim that someone is evil is to believe that good and evil exist, which is a scientific heresy. But his second, and even more interesting conclusion, was that the way people—this is the way people become evil—is through lies. The way people become evil is through lies. His basic thesis was that when we believe lies. When we believe lies and we let those lies fester in us, they destroy us. And just as when you make one good decision, it's easier to make the next good decision and then it's even easier to make the third and even easier to make the fourth, right? And after a while, it's a habit. Just as you believe a lie and let it into your body, it's even easier to believe the next one, to live into the next one. And pretty soon... You're sorry, guys, you're the lie side today, but sorry. So, 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 I mean, you know, so it's good, it's good. But it's even easier And before you know it, and maybe you've known people like this, they're so far divorced, and the evil springs in. Something I said earlier, David Benner puts it like this, it's not so much that we tell lies as that we live them. Let's give an example here as I get ready to try to close. So let's say you believe the lie. You pick this up somewhere in your childhood. Usually that's how it goes, unfortunately. Um, I've talked to God about that. Like, why does that have to work that way? Suppose you believe the lie that you're unlovable, right? You pick that up somewhere along your life journey probably in your childhood, maybe it's a broken relationship with your parents, or maybe it was from, you know, a breakup that you had with a serious boyfriend or girlfriend when you were somewhat young, or maybe it was a failure that you had, or maybe it was just demonic deposited into your mind. Maybe you were raised in a lot of great ways, but somewhere along the way, you just believed that you were unlovable, that everything you doomed, you know, you did was doomed to failure. Everything that you tried was going to break. And then if you let that lie fester, it starts to give shape to your behavior, right? This is like psychology 101. So because you don't believe you're worthy of love, you let people treat you in ways that are disrespectful or demeaning. You let people treat you in ways that you never should, but you don't believe you're worthy of love. So why wouldn't they treat you that way? Because it's what you deserve. So they start to treat you that way. Or maybe they don't even start to treat you that way, but because you believe you're unworthy of love, you just start to act in ways that are disrespectful and demeaning because you believe, I'm not unlovable anyway, no one's going to love me, I'm not going to that effort, I'm not setting myself up for that kind of pain, right? So I'm just going to act in such a way that I just push everybody away, right? And in doing so, right, you become unlovable, right? So you've lived into a lie, and then it's become, like in psychology, kind of the classic self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You become the kind of person And you know what I mean when I say this, but it's not worthy of love or respect. And you alienate yourself from the very relationships that you crave. Lies distort our souls and drive us into ruin. Lies distort our souls and drive us into ruin. I've got so much stuff and I think I'm gonna skip through some of it. Here's the thing. We'll close with the last, we're going to do with six more minutes. Everybody set your timers, okay? We're going to skip ahead on the slides, so just you can jump to this if you can. Lies distort our souls and drive us into ruin. Jesus said, right, the truth, knowing the truth can set us free. But here's the reality. Maybe many of you have dealt with this. I know I sure have. Facing the lies we've come to believe can be terrifying, Facing the lies we've come to believe can be terrifying, right? The illusions we cling to become a part of our identity and with it our security. As the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant author, social commentator David Foster Wallace put it, so aptly, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. And that's not making a light of what Jesus said. It's just this reality that sometimes, right, we're so entangled in this web of our own deceptions and the lies we believed, and we can even see maybe the truth, but it terrifies us. And we know, we know to get out of it isn't going to be without some scars, isn't going to be without some wounds, isn't going to be, you know, to use a great, great metaphor, is not going to be as simple as just walking out. You're going to have to, like Andy Dufresne does in the Shawshank Redemption, crawl through some junk if you want to get clean. It's not easy to do. But it's something we have to do. It's something we have to do in our fight against the devil. It's how we fight is to know the truth. Jesus was all of his calling his people, his disciples, and also other followers to repent and to believe the good news. And we think of that as a confession of sin, which really all of our sins are lived because of lies we've believed, distortions about reality, what we think will bring us happiness. That's what it comes down to. And sometimes we think of repentance as a rushing to the altar and falling on our hands and knees and sobbing uncontrollably. And there are times for that, and those are things that are beautiful, and absolutely that is valid. But oftentimes repentance doesn't have to look like that. What it looks like to repent and believe simply means to rethink your mental maps of what you think will lead you to a happy life and trust in those of Jesus himself. I think that's the next to last slide, guys. If we can put that one up, because I want to hit that one one more time. To repent and believe means, at least in part, to rethink your mental maps of what you think will lead you to a happy life and trust in those of Jesus himself. So the question for you today, as I just leave you hanging, closing question, all this, whose mental maps do you navigate reality by? You're not going to be able to answer this right now. <laughs> Something to discuss in your life groups to think about throughout the week. I'd, be, I'd love to talk with you about this stuff if you want to set up a, a meeting. Love to discuss this more in depth. Whose mental maps do you navigate reality by? Whose ideas do you really trust? Do you really, really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Not just that you get to heaven right because of him, but that you can experience a healthy and whole life by trusting in what he says and how to live your life? Are you navigating life by his reality or by your own? Are you currently believing any lies? Are there things in your life that you're realizing are sprung from a lie you believed? Big questions. Big questions. Whose mental maps do you navigate reality by? Whose ideas do you trust? Are you currently believing any lies? We're not going to just leave you here, okay? I just close now. We never talked about this again. That would be pretty cruel on some level. But I do want to give you seven days to think about this, to discuss it with people that you trust, to discuss it with Pastor Jordan or myself. Ideas, right? Reality, unreality, truth and lies, the battle that we're waging against the devil. Let me pray. Jesus, I just pray right now for anybody, even right now, as they're sitting here, that's recognized in this moment through the Holy Spirit, because it's a gift. If somebody here is realizing that they are living and believing lies, it's a gift that they've had that revealed to them. But I pray right now that they would not be able to rest until they start to address it. I just pray right now you would silence the voice of the enemy right now that's telling them it's better to live that lie than it is to deal with reality, that somehow they can just keep it under wraps and they'll be fine. I just silence that voice of the devil right now because he's probably trying to speak lies and we just proclaim truth, that we can know the truth, and it will set us free, and we can have freedom in Christ, and we can have joy. That whoever is here right now that feels bound up can be set free. I just pray that truth would be known, that it would be proclaimed, that it would be realized, that there would be revelation right now for people in this room. That this series wouldn't just be another series that it's cool or interesting or funny, but that it would be transformative and that people would emerge from this free in ways they never imagined and free in ways they never thought that they could be. Jesus, thank you that you've gone before us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are strong, that you're doing this work. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.